Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be with you this morning. As Darwin said, we're starting a, a new series leading up to um, Ascension Sunday uh, about the resurrection. And for the very reason that Darwin just mentioned, a lot of times for us, we can talk about the resurrection maybe one time a year. You know, we live it every day of our lives, but Easter tends to be that time because that's, what, that's when the resurrection happened in, in our church calendar. That's uh, what we celebrate. But we wanted to sit in that a little bit and talk about that. And so that's what we're going to do here for the next four weeks. And we'll begin that this morning looking at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Peter. And uh, if you are using the Pew Bible, which is the blue uh, book there in your pew, we'll be on page 1014. So as you turn there, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is un, or inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. <laughs> Excuse me. What beautiful words. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would... Give us your spirit as you promised to do, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not. We thank you for your love and your mercy for us. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Let me ask you this question as we begin this morning to sort of unpack a little of the words that Peter has for us, which are remarkable. Um, does knowing how something, I'm going to pull it together here at some point, does knowing how something ends change how someone lives in the present? Does knowing how something ends change how someone behaves or lives in the present? Um, I'm a fan of watching movies over and over again, especially if they're somewhat historical. And some of you might have seen the movie that came out in 2012 called Argo. And if you didn't see it, you've had not only many years to see it, but the story is 40 years old, so spoiler alert. Um, uh, but the, the movie is about, um, in, in November 4th, in 1979, these militants stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, taking 66 American hostages. Um, but six of them were able to escape, and they escaped to the Canadian Embassy. And so, basically, there's this takeover in Tehran, and they are now looking for these American hostages, and they're going door to door, and it's just a matter of time. They're going to find them. And it's these six you know, Americans here who 
are hiding out and what is going to happen. And so um, the, the U.S. government creates this plan, and, and this plan is that they'll send this guy in who's going to act like a Canadian film director, and he's there to scout out some places to film this movie in Iran, and these six people are his actors. And so his job is to go in, locate the six people, the hostages, tell them the story, but this is what's going to happen, and then they're going to walk out of here. <laughs> and if you've seen the movie, you know this is ridiculous. Like, is this, is this what the American government has to offer? This is all we got? Like, what about some firepower here? Why don't we bring some commandos in and come and just get us out of here? No, instead you send this faux director this story that we're supposed to sort of just believe and, and act as if we're this, these actors and director. And then if people stop and ask us, hey, what are these six white people doing in Iran? Well, these, these are Canadian actors, you know. And so you can imagine, it's, it's one thing for you to be able to take on that story. And it's one thing for you to, um, you know, learn the lines. And if you've seen the movie, they've got to go through and learn everything they, 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 that, is po- that they could possibly be asked about this film. They've got to memorize that. They've got to get the data. They've got to, they've got to know everything about this role. And it's one thing to be able to, to do that. But it's another thing for the Iranians to buy it. And so if you want to just sort of summarize this story, this movie up to this point, it's that everything is, is defined by uncertainty. And so there's an enormous amount of stress, an enormous amount of anxiety, an enormous amount of fear going throughout this movie. And especially if you remember that it is a true story. The final scene, spoiler alert, and this is why I bring this up, I think it's one of the best in actually pointing us to um, what we're going to be talking about as far as the resurrection is concerned. And that is, they, 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 just, they decide, the day is coming, they decide they're going to take on these roles. They're going to do it. And so they leave. They get in the car and they head to the airport. They pass all these security checks. And now they just have to get into the airport and then they have to pass several more security checks. And you can begin to see the sweat coming down their faces. You can begin to see the anxiety of, of, of what if they don't buy it? Or what if they don't think that we are who we say we are? And sure enough, as they go through security, they get screened, they get taken into a room where they are interrogated, and every single question that they were trained to, to respond to, they are asked. And there are guns in the room, and there are people ready to arrest them, and if not arrest them, shoot them like they've seen them do already to other hostages. And as you're watching this, you're just, you're just waiting for somebody to crack. I would be sucking my thumb in the corner. I, I'm just done. It's over. Not, I can't do this anymore. And you're just riddled with this anxiety. And the reason I labor with that point is because they get on the plane. And there's this, you know, Hollywood does this little bitty. I don't know if this really happened. But they get on the plane. And, 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 and as, as they get on the plane, this call comes in from Iranian guards. So you got to stop that plane. And so the guards get on the car or their, their jeeps and they start running out onto the runway and there's just sort of this moment where the guards are right there next to the plane right as the plane takes off wheels up the plan worked and in the faces of these six people who of course everybody else that's in the plane doesn't really know what's going on but in the faces of these six people you just see the relief right oh my gosh 
you see how it worked. We're going home. So question, does knowing how something ends change how you live in the present? You know, if we had the ability to tell those people on that plane that wheels up, like, look, you know, back in the beginning of the, that film, right, when they were in that room being told that here's the only plan to get them out, if you, if you had the ability to tell them this is going to work, you don't have to worry about it, how would that change how they lived in the present? Of course, right? Maybe no more anxiety, no more stress, no more fear. How could it not change how they live in the present? This morning, having just celebrated Easter two weeks ago, we are beginning this four-week sermon, as we said, and we are calling it Living Out the Resurrection, a different way to be human. This morning, we begin with Peter's understanding of the resurrection and what it means for us. And for Peter, because of Jesus' resurrection, we know how the story ends. For Peter, the resurrection of Jesus, if I could say this, is the wheels up, as it were, moment that tells us now that the plan worked. We're going to make it home. Not in a, we are escaping this God-forsaken place kind of way, let me be clear about that, but in the hope it brings because of the certainty of resurrection and what it provides. And so for this morning, if the resurrection, resurrection truly tells us what's coming, if it truly tells us how the story ends, what does that do for how we live today? Can we sit there, uh, right, do, are we able to live with reactions on our faces, so to speak, of the relief that the plan worked, that we're going to make it home? Does it truly offer us a different way to be human then? in this world and in this place now, or do we just punch our ticket and sort of sit around waiting, wondering, maybe, 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 maybe this resurrection thing is real. Maybe Jesus will come back. I'll just go on about my lives. Our aim over these next four weeks is as an, as an opportunity to reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus and what that really means for us today, because it truly does mean that the plan worked. And we know the end of the story. And because we know the end of the story, it has everything to do with how we live our lives today. This morning you have three points there in your bulletin that I want to look at briefly. And that is because of the resurrection, and that is our anchor clause, right? It is, just, it is because of that and nothing else. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a salvation. And we have a salvation that offers us a living hope. And we have a salvation that is certain as an inheritance for us. And we have a salvation that is actually being guarded, that we are being guarded for. So let's look at those three things in that order. The first, the salvation that produces a living hope. Why does Peter say in verse 3, if you'll look at it with me, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope? I'm going to focus in on that word living hope there. Is, is, that, a, is that different than just sort of regular hope? Actually, it is. Um, Hope in Scripture is closer, friends, to certainty. It is sometimes, or something that is certain, but it's just not seen or realized yet. 
And you've probably heard this example or illustration. It's closer to saying that I hope the sun rises tomorrow. And why would we say I hope that the sun rises tomorrow? Not because we are unsure that it will happen unless it's the end of the world, which is, I guess, a possibility. We don't say that because we are unsure that it will happen, but because we are certain that it will based on all the other days that we have seen the sun rise. Though we have not seen tomorrows yet. This is what the word hope means in scripture. This is what makes it living or genuine. Genuine would be another way to say it for Peter. It's like a previous sunrise. He has seen, Peter has seen what is coming for those that he is writing to. And where has he seen this? In the resurrected body of Jesus himself. This is why it's living hope for Peter. It is certain for, so our use of the word today though, and this is important, I think, to sort of get around or at least acknowledge. Our use of the word today of hope is understood against a more modern, right, and scientific background where we register empirical facts and data on one side and we deal with, uh, you know, uncertainty and, and hope even on the other. But the Bible doesn't do that. And you might be, the Bible, you may think, well, yeah, the Bible doesn't know about our science. No, that's not, that's not it either. The Bible doesn't do that. And it doesn't do it because it's ignorant of those things. But because it's that, that's not all there is either. Hope in scripture is, is tomorrow's sunrise. It's closer to certainty because it's been, it's been seen before. And that's why Peter says we too have a living hope because the resurrected Jesus has been seen and we now know the end of the story. Peter is writing to Gentile Christians in this letter who are dispersed throughout the region. Um, Many who are experiencing much persecution and much loss. People who would say that everything in their lives is best described as uncertain. People who have had their homes taken from them. People who have had and seen loved ones taken and killed in front of them, people who themselves have lost their lives. And yet here's Peter, who is not writing to say, run, get out of there. And he's not even writing to say, look, I, look, I know that stuff I told you about Jesus. I wanted it to be inspiring. I didn't really mean for you to take it literally. That's not what he says, is it? He says, hang in there. He says, this is nothing compared to what awaits you. Don't you know where we are in the story? It is wheels up. The plan worked. Jesus is resurrected. You're going to make it home. Peter is appealing to the real hope that they have because Jesus is real, friends. And because that's true, that changes everything. Now, why don't we have that? Maybe all the time or at all. I'd love to have that kind of hope, right? Where I could stare deaf in the face and not really even be moved by that. And before we move on, I, you know, I, think, I think one of the reasons that maybe we feel so little hope in our lives is really a, a, a story of two foundations. And that is in Scripture, you, your world, your life is either built on the foundation of, foundation of Jesus or it's built on the foundation of self. Sometimes the Bible uses the picture of sand and rock. 
And examples of building your life on sand, for example, would be you know, building your life around money, around success, around pleasure. But all that really is is just building your, your life around yourself when the Bible offers something much better, a more sure foundation upon Jesus himself. But we, uh, especially today, where this message, I think, of foundations is so important because what we live, hyper-individual lives. We are so self-absorbed as a culture today. And could that not be one of the reasons why there is so little hope in our lives? You might say that we are a selfie-obsessed people, and this is nothing against technology, by the way, really quickly. Because, look, if Israel was in the wilderness and they, had, when they were in the wilderness, if they had selfie or, or smartphones, they would be a selfie-obsessed people, too. This is just the way that it looks like today. But, look, we are trying to find or unlock the solutions to life's problems by looking within. If I can just change my circumstances, things will be better. But it's not working. And we know this. But we hope that the more pictures that we take to stay with the example, the more into ourselves that we become, we will one day realize the full potential that that Instagram filter and pose suggests. But it's not working. It's not working. We feel it. It's not bringing me the peace that I wanted. I'm certainly not, not, not feeling less anxiety in my life. And so where are we to go? We need a better foundation. And it's the same old story. We need a better foundation. And Jesus offers that in himself. Jesus offers a refuge to the hyper-individualism or a life built around you that does nothing but crumble and fall apart. So I think a question that Peter is forcing his audience to ask, though, regardless of what life is throwing at them, is, look, if you're a Christian, and I would ask this to you, too, and ask this to myself, if we're Christians, are we not united to Jesus? Which means that what has happened to him will happen to us. That, that is the new reality because of the resurrection. If we are united to Jesus, we no longer belong to ourselves. Someone has bought us. If you live, live as one who belongs only to you, you will never taste the living hope that we have because of the resurrection. Jesus offers a refuge, and Peter knows it. He has seen it, and it is so certain for him. There's no need to tell his audience to run. But instead, in verse 6, if you look at it, he says, In this you rejoice. What is in this hope? You rejoice He's actually saying that now, because of Jesus, suffering can be turned into rejoicing. And this is, this is the different way to be human that the resurrection offers us. The reason, perhaps, that there is so little hope in our lives today begins or is because we are building on the wrong foundation. Hope, a living hope, friends, is found on a rock. It is found on Jesus Christ. And that is certain for us because of what the resurrection tells us this morning. So that's the first thing. We have a salvation. We have a salvation that offers a living hope. Second, a salvation that is as certain or sure as an inheritance. Uh, You'll see this here in verse 4. Peter likens our salvation in Christ to that of an inheritance. And we all know what an inheritance is. Um, It is something you typically receive by virtue of being a part of a family or, you know, children to parents, that kind of thing. And, uh, for, you know, for a second, forget about whether or not you're actually written into that will. It's not, it doesn't matter. Uh, 
faith in Christ, you're written into the book of the, of the, of the Lamb, so let's just stay there. Uh, but inheritance always implies someone else doing something for you that you cannot do for yourself. This is, this is why one of the reasons Peter uses this metaphor. You can't give yourself an inheritance. It must be secured and given to you by someone else. But what Peter has in mind here is the certainty of that inheritance, that it's real. There's a tangibility here that he wants them to, to, to lean into. Actually, it's ready for them now, he says. And this is what resurrection means. Again, it's, it's wheels up. We know where we are in the story. For Peter, it is as certain as your parents' house or car or garage full of junk that they will leave you upon their death. That's how certain it is for Peter. But unlike that house, unlike that car, and unlike the stuff in that garage, this inheritance, as Peter says, is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. And it may sound like Peter's using some words here that are describing uh, the same thing, but he's actually referring to another inheritance that did perish, that was defiled and faded, and that was the inheritance given to Israel in the promised land of Canaan. Listen to Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 to 5, briefly. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. And as we may know, Israel never really fully trusted the Lord and received the land as God commanded. They defiled the land by worshiping idols, as we read in the Old Testament. It perished and that it was taken from them. Listen to what one commentary writes about this. They said, the inheritance of the new covenant is thus shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. That earthly land was not kept for them, but was taken from them in exile and later in Roman occupation. Even while they possessed the land, it produced rewards that decayed, rewards whose glory faded away. The beauty of the land's holiness before God was repeatedly defiled by sin, first by heathen inhabitants, than by Israel's idolatry. This is the understanding of inheritance that Peter has, that of Canaan. But in stark contrast, he puts before his audience an an inheritance we now have because of Jesus and his resurrection. We stand to receive what Israel could not secure and what Canaan ultimately only pointed to, that which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading New resurrected bodies, friends. A new heavens and a new earth. A new way to live and to worship and to be in communion with God forever. An inheritance that cannot be taken away from you, that is being kept for you, as the end of verse 4 says. That is what is before you. But the reason he's mentioning this in the first place to come back to it is because of its certainty. And that's what resurrection means. Like this is here for you. It is here now. For Peter, because of resurrection, this inheritance, this salvation is certain. The only thing uncertain is when Jesus returns to bring us this full salvation, this inheritance that is being kept for us. Which moves to my last point, a salvation that you are being guarded for. And this is the part that really just drives home Peter's message. The only thing uncertain about this inheritance, as I said, this full salvation is its timing. When, when is Jesus going to return? And so Peter knows that this is really the sticking point 
for his audience. Because as they wait, they are experiencing trials. Their faith is being tested. What words of encouragement could you give to a people who are trying to reconcile this future reality of inheritance and salvation in Jesus with their present circumstances of Christians being run out of their homes and out of their land? What hope do you have to offer them? In other words, when the hope seems to run out as it can from time to time in our own lives, when the hope doesn't feel like it is living, but it is dead, if, we are, if it's okay to be honest in here, what is Peter's audience to rest in? And he gives it to us there in verse 5, that not only is this inheritance being kept in heaven for them, they are being kept for it. Think about that, friends. They are being guarded by God. Verse 5 reads, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Marshall, one commentary on this, writes, In view of the tribulations that they are facing, Peter reassures his readers that they are being kept safely by God. They are like a fort which is garrisoned to keep in safe from the enemy's attack. God will protect them by his power from the hostile attacks of evil. Friends, I don't know what better news there is out there than to know that even in your worst days, when you are feeling like everything is hanging by a thread, that you are being kept. You're being guarded. That's why it's wheels up for Peter. You will die one day. But that will not be permanent for you. It will not prevent you from getting home. Peter is saying the plan has worked. That's what resurrection tells us. You are being kept You're being guarded, if you want to think about it this way, by a legion of angels this very minute. Those who have been sent by our king's command with the words, no one is to lay a finger on you. And it's at this point where Peter's audience begins to recognize, yes, something may come at me here, but it does not keep me for what awaits because of the resurrection of Jesus. That is where real life is. Do you know that this morning? Are you able to, to, to throw your minds in that direction so that you can, so that it changes and impacts how you live today? I'm not saying I can. <laughs> I'm saying, let's just consider it. Because that's what resurrection means for us. You may have never thought about it this way, but you walked in here this morning with an entourage. And it wasn't your kids. It wasn't your problems that don't seem to leave you alone. Like an entourage of angels guarding you, keeping you. And one of the things this means for Peter and his audience, how he intends to encourage them at this time, is that this means that you are not alone. Words that as you are being run out of your homes and as you are seeing over your shoulder, you're seeing the flames of your homes go up. You're not alone. 
And as we reconcile what that really means, in the moment we rest on the truth and the fact that as a Christian here today, because of the resurrection, you are never alone. As a matter of fact, you will never, ever be alone. At death, Jesus will go with you. And somewhere in the midst of that, as you are running from your house, as you are being chased, as you are dealing with your problems, your fears, somewhere in the midst of that, there emerges a living hope. I don't know a better way to put it. Because as he's, you haven't seen him, but you, but you love him. You do not now see him, but you believe in him. Why? Why do we resonate with that? Because it's real. It's true. And this is Peter's message to his people. Because they are united to him. His death is their death. His resurrection is their resurrection. We all die. But now death is a beginning for Peter. It is not an end. And it's real and it's certain. We are being guarded. We are being kept for it right now. Peter David sums it up this way, saying it is this reality of the future which will enable the readers to face even death without fear. And perhaps you one day too. For death is not an end for the Christian, but a beginning. And because that's true, there is a different way today to be human. Let me end with this story just for the sake of time. I came across an article Called, titled, Pack Your Coffins, Let's Go. Um, you'll read about, uh, if you can come across it yourself, you'll read about three missionaries uh, back in the 19th century who set out to evangelize the Sudan and Africa, also known as uh, the white man's graveyard, um, just because they would just, missionaries would come in from Canada, would come in from uh, different places to go and, and, and evangelize this this part of the world that has not been reached in this way to, to share this message. And I want to be careful about that. To share this message, not colonize the people. Um, but to share this message about grace and mercy and hope. And uh, they just fell left and right because of the diseases that their bodies could not handle. Um, and so <laughs> these men knew that. And so they put together these teams and they would go into the sedan. And, and, and the way that they would go in there, the way they would leave their homes is that you could bring anything that you could fit in your coffin. Because the idea was that you would go there to die. In this particular article, we read of Canadian missionaries Walter Gowans and Roland Bingham and then American missionary Thomas Kent seeking to reach the 60 million unreached people of the sub-Saharan Africa. Malaria would take all three of these men. Uh, In the first journey, Gowans and the American Kent would die. Bingham would come back, get better, only to go back to the Sudan to get malaria again, make it back to Canada to try to get better, to try to return. He would never return. And instead, he would actually formulate a team while he was getting better that would actually go to set up a camp that would actually begin a ministry to these people that is actually still around today. But here's a letter written by Gallen, uh, one of the original three who died on the first trip over. And he wrote this on August 9th, 1894. He said, written in view of my approaching end, which has often lately seemed so near, but now just seems so imminent, and I want to write while I have the power to do so. Well, glory to God. He has enabled me to make a hard fight for the Sudan, and although it may seem like a total failure and defeat, it is not. We shall have the victory, and that right speedily. I have no regret for undertaking this venture, and in this manner, my life has not been thrown away. My only regrets 
or for my dear, or my poor dear mother, for her sake I would have chosen to live. And then he goes on and he writes to his mother, and I can't read that right now because it's just, it's, it's just going to make you weep. Um, <clears throat> but he does write, dear mother, you have been the most wonderful mother anybody could ask for. But he, he tags it here at the end. He says, um, <clears throat> excuse me. He says, if the suffering was great, remember it all at hand. And the, or excuse me, if the suffering was great, remember it is all over now. And I think, the glo- think of the glory I'm enjoying and rejoice that your, your boy, quote, was permitted to have a hand in the redemption of the Sudan. Oh, how I did wish to live for your sake. Goodbye, dearest, till we meet at Jesus' feet. Walter. I'll try to cut through some of the, I'm not, I'm not saying this for some emotional movement here. That is a different way to be human. I'm not sure I, I fully understand that. And as emotional as it is, Gowan and the rest of the team can only say these things and they can only live this way because resurrection is true. Yes, it is a very different way to be human indeed, but the point of reading this to you is not to get everyone to run out to the sedan, which some of you should go, and it's not to get some of you to run out and be missionaries, although some of you should. The point is to recognize that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can all live, pack your coffin, let's go lives. As a matter of fact, we're called to. This is what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Whether that's in the Sudan or whether that's in Fort Worth. Why? Because death cannot hold you anymore. Do you know that? Do you believe that? See, knowing how something ends truly changes how someone lives in the present. Death is not the end, but the beginning now for the Christian. It means that there is truly a different way to think about your life today. How you will live it. How you will love what you, what you will love, what matters to you, why it matters, what should I do with my money? What should I do with the authority that it feel like, I feel like I give my fears? The resurrection changes everything because death is not the end. But friends, and this is where I'll leave it, there is one thing more important than knowing how the story ends for you this morning. I'll make it through this. It's ridiculous. Sorry. There's one thing more important than knowing how the story ends. It's, it's understanding why the story ends. <clears throat> ugly, ugly cough and snort and cry. Hold on. Okay. It's understanding why the story ends the way that it ends. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why did these missionaries go to Sudan? Why did they go there with their coffins? Was it because they knew how the story ended? No, it's they, they knew why the story ended that way. And why did the story end that way? And Peter gives it to us back in verse 3, very subtly. Go back and look at it. The story ends that way because of the great mercy of God. You see that? God didn't give us what we deserve so that he could give us what we didn't deserve. That's Peter's message to his people. A wonderful salvation at the expense of his son, Jesus, that is grace. 
That's why these men said, pack your coffins, let's go. They knew why the story ended this way, God's mercy to them. This is why many who saw the resurrected Jesus didn't believe. They saw how the story ended, but they never saw why the story ended that way. Because of God's great mercy to you. Not giving us what we deserve so that he might give us what what we do not deserve. This wonderful salvation, this inheritance, this living hope only found in Jesus that is being guarded for you. It's this love that allows us to live the resurrection today. May that be a chorus this morning that sings over you, drowning out all the other choruses of fear and uncertainty that we surely will face tomorrow. That's my prayer for us. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word from Peter that you gave him. We thank you that you... um, have such a great mercy for us. And, and in that mercy, you, you show us how this story ends. You show us what, how our lives end. And bodily resurrection, united to you. And so we ask and we give ourselves to you in this way. We ask that you would help us to see what that means for our lives today. Yes, we know how the story ends, but we know why the story ends that way. Would you change us and show us what we might do as your church to impact this place, to impact our friends, to impact the lives of our families, or maybe just to change, to change something inside of us because we have not come into contact with a mercy and a love as great as this. Would you do that for your glory, we pray. Amen.